0: Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Will Dragoo. Well, well done, Jeff, on the pronunciation, because that is not easy to say. Um, Dragoo, not dragon, as I often get. Um, it's a joy to be here. I'm a pastor at Concord Baptist, and like I say this when I've had the opportunity to speak here, it's always nice to worship at another church. Just a reminder that, you know, it's the same gospel. It's the same spirit. It's the same church. Um, and it's just a good reminder. It's, it's very easy to get kind of stuck in our ways, the way we do church. And, you know, each church does things a little bit differently. But, man, we are one body. We have one spirit. And we believe the same gospel. And so I know you guys have been um, talking about gospel-shaped community and wanting to be missional. So it's always interesting when you have the opportunity to to preach a text you want. It's kind of overwhelming. I think, man, the entire scripture, like, <laughs> You could pick what you want. And I wanted to kind of build off of what Pastor Isaiah has been teaching you. Um, one thing our pastor at Concord has said um, with the sermon series we're going through is some, some truths just swim about the mind, but they never reach the heart. That's kind of a dangerous thing of, of, of walking this life of, of the Christian life, isn't it? We, we allow these truths, and you got a lot of really good truths. I got to listen to those sermons. Don't let them just swim about your minds and stay there. The challenge is to let them reach your heart and your affections and to drive you to become the community that you heard about from Scripture. And so I wanted to to preach from Acts 2 this morning. My hope is that this text reinforces what y'all have been talking about the past few weeks, but also, again, man, it hits you in the heart. It's a beautiful passage which was just read about what authentic gospel community looks like. And so I want to talk about the good life this morning. The good life, which is, if you're a student of philosophy, it's a philosophical term that philosophers have asked for ages. What is the good life? What is the life worth living? What is the life at the end of the day that you would call the blessed life? So again, my church, Concord Baptist, we've been walking through the Beatitudes for the last several number of sermons. And our sermon series has been Your Be- your Blessed Life Now, which is a little shot at Joel Osteen, um, if you know who that is. But it's also intentionally trying to... Um, make you think about what the blessed life is. What is the life that when you live, you could say, I'm truly blessed, I'm favored by God? Because when you read the Beatitudes, kind of upside down, isn't it? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the meek. Those aren't exactly what we would typically define as being blessed or favored. I mean, think about what our culture would define the blessed life, the good life. Our culture might define the blessed life as a life of leisure, a life of rest, a life of sleeping in. And there are good things about that, right? Especially if you have kids, you know, sleeping in is like 7 a.m. And that can be a very blessed life (laughs) until they come in and scream. It could be a life of unrestrained, do what you want to do, an unhindered life, a life where no one can define who you are or tell you what to do. Uh, It could be a life of pleasure. Get the most pleasure out of this life as you can. And again, that's how culture defines the good life, but that kind of seeps into our thinking, doesn't it, as Christians, because it's all around us. It's in what we watch, it's what we listen to, Um, and it slowly slowly seeps into our hearts. I, I could ask us How does evangelical culture define the good life? And I bet we'd get some interesting answers there, popular evangelical culture. Um, But then what I want to look at this morning, obviously, is what Scripture has to tell us about the good life. And we, again, could turn to a number of different passages, but I want to look at Acts 2 this morning. And I will read it again just because I think, again, the words I have to say, the questions I have to ask, they're meant to make you think. But if there's anything you can take away from today, it's this passage of Scripture that you would read it, that you would meditate on it, that it would seep again into our hearts and not just float about our minds. But it would become a reality. So in Acts 2, we have this picture of the good life, which, you know, is not the life of pleasure. It's not the unhindered life. It's the church life. I bet not many of you, when you walked in these doors, thought, I'm living the good life coming in these doors. But Scripture... Says that we are. The good life is the life of the church, the life of the body. It's the best thing that you sojourn can give your lives to, that you can devote yourselves to. And I want us to see that in Scripture. So, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. This is the good life. It says the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Sojourn, this is the good life. This is the life that you're hopefully experiencing today. Again, it's interesting to preach this as an outsider, because I've been with you a few times, but I don't get to see your time together outside of this meeting time, in your small groups, in your friendships. And again, a tendency for us as broadly a church is to oftentimes just make this mechanical, make this just a part of our lives. Yes, we believe the church is important, but the good life is really over here. That's not what Luke teaches in Acts 2. Luke gives us a picture of the good life, and so I'll have several, hopefully, pretty clear points. The good life is, first and foremost, a devoted life. The good life is a communal life, and the good life is a supernatural life. So the good life is a devoted life. It's a communal life. And it's a supernatural life. Let's look at the devoted life. This I'm pulling from verse 42. And they, the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. So it's a devoted life. And the church is devoted to to the three things. I just read them. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, and to prayer. I'll briefly unpack those things. But it is interesting to just kind of think about that word devoted. What comes to mind when you think of that word Devoted. In my weird mind, I think of Sandra D in Greece. One person has seen it. Yes. She's hopelessly devoted to Danny, right? I was a weird kid and I liked Greece, and I did not know what a lot of the words meant when I listened to the soundtrack. But that one has stuck out hopelessly devoted to someone. On a more serious note, we're often devoted to our jobs. Our times, our efforts, our energies are put into what we do and often with good reason, because it's where we spend a majority of our time. And it's a good thing to have a good job, to provide for ourselves and our families, to do something lasting and impactful. We may be devoted to our families. That's an obvious one, too. That's a good one to be devoted to. I saw several thousand people devoted in orange last night. Very happy to be devoted to Tennessee after, what, 20, 20 years? It's been a long time. But we're also devoted to our causes. That's also a a place where I think a lot of us really show devotion to things we believe in and we care about. Maybe we're devoted to the life of the unborn. Or maybe we're devoted to ending racism and fighting against injustice. We're divided to those things that we believe matter and that aren't superficial. Here, it's interesting that the church, again, those are not bad things to be devoted to, but that's not what the church is devoted to. First and foremost, they're devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. The teaching of those who have been placed in authority over them, the teachings of Peter, James, John, the teaching of the apostles, those who have seen the resurrected Christ, those who are trying to unpack the scriptures for them, those who are hoping to point out how the Christ fulfills all these scriptures that they know by heart since they were child, children. I think what that means, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, the same thing that we have. We have the, the New Testament. We have the entire can of scripture. And the early church is devoted. Again, I hope you guys think about how strong of a word that is. They're devoted to it. What does that mean to be devoted to Scripture? I think it means that we have to go beyond just a five-minute quiet time. Not that quiet times are bad. That doesn't quite say devotion, does it? We kind of call them devotions. But we're not devoted to the Word if we just touch it for a moment and move on. No, no, to be devoted to Scriptures means that it truly is our daily bread. To be devoted to Scripture means we don't just know what Scripture means, but again, we're making... Hoping that the scriptures make its way to our hearts and it's lived out by us on a daily basis. To be devoted to the scriptures, to the apostles' teachings, means that we're, we're clinging to them as our very life source. And again, I maybe can speak about myself, but it tends to be our common practice. We're probably not as devoted to the scriptures as we, as we think. I mean, to look at your life and your time and your schedules and think are you devoted to the scriptures? The amazing thing that you and I have that they don't is we can access scripture anytime. We can pull up on our phones. We can listen to it in our cars. We can get any sort of translation we want, which means we have every opportunity to be devoted to the teachings of the apostles, to the scriptures. I guess the question this morning is, are we? Are we devoted to the scriptures? Are we seeking to apply them to our lives? Do we give them the time that they deserve? And I guess I could ask what better thing can you devote your life to than the scriptures? I thought of this passage All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. You guys probably know this, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So this week, how can we be devoted to the scriptures? How can we adjust our schedules? How can we learn that discipline? Because it is indeed a discipline. So the early church is devoted to the teaching of the apostles. They're also devoted to a life of fellowship. The teaching of the apostles and to a life of fellowship. And I won't spend a ton of time here because my main point number two is a communal life. But I will say they are devoted to fellowship. And that comes again in verse 42. The church wasn't just for them a weekly one-hour meeting. How do we know this? Look at the text. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayers. That phrase, breaking of bread, is important. We still use that phrase sometimes. When we break bread, we typically mean what? We're eating together in each other's homes, spending time together. When someone says, let's break bread together, they mean let's eat. I think that's what Luke has in mind here. The church is breaking bread together in their homes, but it probably has another meaning to it as well. When you think of the breaking of bread, scripturally, you should also think of the Lord's Supper and communion, which is also probably what's in mind here. So these aren't just random meals where they're talking about fantasy football. These are meals where Christ is at the center, literally, as they break bread together, and they're reminded of Christ's body broken for them. So they're devoted to a very intentional godly fellowship. They're devoted to breaking bread together. So it's, it isn't just, again, just a, a casual meeting. It's an intentionally spiritual meeting. It also tells us it's a, it's a consistent meeting, verse 46. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread, there's that repetition in their homes. They receive their food with a gladness, and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all people. So once again, there's that repetition. They're breaking bread in homes, but they're also attending the temple together, which tells you it's more than just meeting. It's almost a lifestyle. They're breaking bread, but they're also attending temple together. And maybe most importantly in verse 47, it tells us they're doing this day by day, day by day. Like church is their people. That's the people they hang out with, not the people they see once a week or twice a week, as we're good about in the South. And it's interesting to me, and again, I won't spend much more time here because we have a whole other point to go over with fellowship. It's fascinating to me that Luke elevates what the church is doing. They're they're with the apostles' teaching, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, and they're devoted to prayer. I think those are two obvious ones for us as Christians. Like, yes, Scripture of prayer, but he elevates fellowship to the same level. Which is fascinating to me, because of the three, that's probably the one that we tend to focus and emphasize the least, doesn't it? Church is kind of that thing that you can take and leave. You can, I'm not feeling well, or I didn't sit up too late last night. I'm just gonna stay home. Or again, in the good old South here, you can just kind of visit a million different. That's an exaggeration, but there's a lot of churches down here, isn't there? You can kind of make the tour of Chattanooga by its churches. Churches kind of become this thing that we just do. Not so in the early church. They're devoted to fellowship. And again, as an outsider, I don't know if that's what's happening here. It seems like it is the heartbeat of what's wanting to be happening. But again, even in a group this size, I know there's people that are, man, they're devoted to fellowship and there's people that kind of hang back from devoting themselves to fellowship. And if that's you, what keeps you back from giving yourself to the good life to the life that the Lord has for for you and his church. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to fellowship. And last, they're devoted to prayer, to prayer. And again, that comes from verse 42. As they're fellowshipping, as they're breaking bread, they're devoted to prayer for one another. And of all three things, this one to me is the hardest for me personally to wrap my mind around because I can convince myself I'm devoted to Scripture. I'm in it. I'm practically doing it. I'm devoted to it. I'm devoted to fellowship. I'm an elder. I serve at a church. I'm devoted to it. Of course I am. But prayer is that one that's hard. It's the, the, I don't know if you're the same way. Maybe it's my lack of self-discipline that makes it hard. But man, prayer is hard, and I think partially it's because it's the most supernatural. It's the one where we go to God because we can't do it ourselves. They're devoted to praying for one another in their homes. It seems like the church in Acts doesn't just say, hey, I'll pray for you, and forget it. No, they actually meet together with the intent of breaking bread and praying together. I know that can sometimes be an uncomfortable thing to do for one another, because it's not always common, is it? In fact, I've been rejected sometimes when I ask someone if I could pray for them, which is weird. Who does that? Can I pray for you right now? No, 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 thank you. Oh, okay. And sometimes uh, the way we do our pastoral contacts at Concord, as we do it over the phone, if we can't connect with a person physically. So sometimes, you know, when you pray someone over the phone, it's not always the, the easiest, naturally flowing thing. But it's, this, it's God, and it's bringing our request to Him, and it's vital and important. It makes me think of um, the parable of the persistent widow. When I think of a church that's passionate and devoted to prayer. I think of this widow in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus tells this parable, it says, he says, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary, and for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, you gotta love this, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. I mean, don't you love that Jesus tells that parable? I'm going to teach you about prayers. I'm going to tell you about this irritating widow who bothers this guy into finally giving her what she wants. Jesus' point is clear. He tells the parable in in verse 1, chapter 18, to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And he ends the parable by saying, and the Lord said, "Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily." So the point's obvious. The widow is persistent, and Christ is encouraging us to be the same. Are we persistently going to the Lord in prayer? The widow does this to an unrighteous judge who neither fears God nor fears man, but man, he's just irritated. So her persistent wins. And Christ is clear here, as he so often is, how much more do we have reason to go to our good heavenly father who wants to give us things, who wants to give good gifts. He's not going to give us a snake when we ask for it. But oftentimes we have not because we ask not. I'd be curious to know what our churches would look like if we were more persistent in prayer if we were given to continual prayer with a trust and a rock-solid belief that God is going to grant our requests. He's going to give us what we cannot do ourselves. Are we persistent like this widow? The church seems to be. They're giving themselves. They're devoted to prayer. Imagine what God could do at sojourn with such persistent prayer. So, I know that's the first point, and I spent a good bit of time there, but that's an, it's an important section because none of the other stuff ultimately can matter if the church itself is not devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to prayer. So, the church is, the, the good life for the church is a devoted life, point number one, devoted to the teaching, to fellowship, to prayer, but it's also a communal life, a communal life, I get that from really verse, the entire passage, really, church living life together. But let's look at verse 44. They're unified in their belief, this communal life. They're unified in their belief. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. The church that lives together is unified by their beliefs. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They're not unified by their hobbies, by their socioeconomic backgrounds. They're not unified because they all live in the same area. They're unified by their belief. And what a beautiful picture of the gospel that is. It it makes me think of the quote by Michael Lawrence, a fellow pastor who says, Because of Christ, I have more in common with a retired widow in my church than I do with a non Christian dad who is my age and likes to hike and camp like me. Apparently, Michael Lawrence likes to hike and camp. Because of Christ, A white, middle-aged businessman has more in common with me because of Christ. I think I wrote that down wrong. Because of Christ, a white, middle-aged businessman has less in common with me than, than a young Native American woman in the church because of the gospel. To the world, this seems crazy. But it's true. And the only way to explain it is the gospel of Christ, which makes us one. Gospel community is a community that's united by what? The gospel a shared experience, what Christ has done for us. The one experience that should be deep enough and rich enough and overflowing out of our hearts, and it unites us. I love that he says he has more in common with a, an older widow than he does that than someone who would have shared interests. Is that the case in our churches today? I have no doubt that we all have the same beliefs. I see that. You guys have the same beliefs as my church. But are we unified by it? Are we brought together? Does my belief in the gospel compel me to go to someone in here that I may have nothing else in common with except that? And so because of that, I have everything in common with them. Is the gospel pushing us toward one another in community? It is in the early church. It is in the book of Acts, and it can today. So they're unified in their beliefs. They're also unified in their love and care for one another. It says in verse 45, they're selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they're unified in their beliefs, but they're also unified in their love and their care for one another. They're all selling of their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds as those who need it. So it's a unified life. But it's also an unhindered life, which is interesting. This church does not seem hindered by possessions. They're not bogged down by their love of stuff. In fact, their love of stuff is easily surpassed by their love for one another. If someone's in need, I'll sell my stuff to provide for this person. How foreign is that to us? How foreign is that to me? I think of how generous... My family can be, but often that's with money that we have that we don't need. I've never had to sell something personal that I love and care about. I've never walked to the pawn shop and sold it in order to provide for someone in need. And I have to be honest with you, that's oftentimes easy to give, isn't it? I have $100 laying around I can give to someone in need. I feel good about myself. Again, that's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to give. Lord has provided. But man, the church is taking this to another level. They're sacrificing and they're selling their stuff in order to provide, which is, again, another level from what we oftentimes practice. The church is doing authentic God-glorifying sacrifice, sacrificial giving. And again, this reminds me of another parable of Jesus, where someone does the opposite of this. It's, It's a parable of the rich fool. Jesus tells this parable of a man And he says this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this guy's the opposite of the church who's giving sacrificially. This guy is successful, he's prosperous, and what does he do? He doesn't think about who I can give these things to. Let me just build bigger barns. He's a practical guy, we give him that. He reminds me of an American so much. Like This is the American dream, isn't it? Build bigger barns to hold more stuff. And then I can just take it easy. I've got everything I need in life. This is, this is the good life. This is the life I sometimes watch on Shark Tank, and I think, man, look how successful this business is. But Jesus in the parable says this man is a fool. He's a fool because this night his soul is required of him. And who's going to get what he's laid up for himself? And so is the man who is rich on earth but not rich toward God. Sadly, I think this often resembles us if we're honest. It's wise to prepare, it's wise to save. Please don't hear me saying that. I get extreme anxiety when I think about people that don't spend well or are fiscally conservative. It makes me so anxious. So I'm not saying that because I'm as safe as they come. I don't want to be safe like this guy, I want to be like the church who is not tied to earthly things, who willingly sells things because they believe they have a better and a greater treasure laid up for them in heaven. A church who's willing to provide for one another and sacrificing to do so. So the life is a unified life. They're unified in their beliefs. They're unified in their care and their love for one another. They're unhindered. It's an unhindered life. They're unhindered by the earthly things, not like the rich fool. And last of all, and again, this connects to what we've been saying, it's a generous life. It's a generous life. They're generous with their goods. But it also says that this generosity expresses itself in a different way. It says they're generous with those in need. Well, it says, sorry, it says this here. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes... They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So generous with their objects, but they're also receiving their food. They're receiving what's given to them with glad and generous hearts, with thankful hearts, with hearts that are overflowing with generosity, with hearts that look at what's been given to them by God is just what that is. It's a gift and not something owed to them. And this is a really weird example, but it reminds me of the Cratchit family, my Christmas carol. I know it's not Christmas time, but it reminds me of them. The Cratchits who have nothing. They're so poor, and they work for the worst man possible. They can't even afford, what is that? They can't afford a turkey? Yeah, yeah. But they have a goose, and that goose is everything to them. They have generous hearts that are overflowing and thankful because their treasure is not monetary. It's each other. It's a community. It's their family. It's their fellowship. So yeah, I think of the Cratchits, but man... They don't have Christ, the Cratchits, that we know of. We do. So the church, I think because they're devoted to the scriptures, because they're devoted to fellowship, because they're they're placing their lives into that which truly matters, they're freed up from the things of this earth, and their hearts are generous, and they're receptive and thankful. So I know this is a lot coming at you, but just isn't this a beautiful picture of the good life? Don't we as a church want generous hearts, unhindered hearts, hearts that are willing to serve and sacrifice for each other, hearts that are glad in the gospel and what Christ has done for us? That's the picture of the church in Acts 2. It's a devoted life. It's a communal life. It's a life lived together. But it's also a supernatural life. This is my third and final point. It's a supernatural life. God is present and active in the life of the church. One thing the text makes clear is that signs and wonders are being done. Signs and wonders are being done. God is doing the miraculous. I mean, even right before this passage, he's already done the miraculous. Peter preaches the Pentecost sermon, and 3,000 souls are saved. Boom, on the spot. It says 3,000 are added and baptized, which, man, logistically, 3,000 people being baptized. Did they all get baptized at once? Was it like over the course of weeks? I don't know but that's an amazing supernatural experience. And I know, I know Acts is not normative. It's not normative. We can't expect the Spirit to fall on us in tongues of fire and 3,000 people to be saved. We can't expect on our way to lunch to meet an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the book of Isaiah. I know that's not normal. I think that's wise. But man, don't you yearn for the supernatural still? Don't you yearn for what only God can do? See, in the church today, I think so often we are so used to trying to control and manufacture and do things because we can do them in our own strength, and it's easier that way. But clearly, in the church in Acts 2, the supernatural is happening. Supernatural is happening. God is doing what only God can do. God is saving, God is knitting this group of believers together by his gospel. God is giving favor to the church with people. That's another part of this that seems supernatural. God is giving them favor. The church is not trying to gain favor. They're not trying to be culturally relevant. And yet, people look upon them in favor. I think that's because they see authentic gospel-shaped living, authentic sacrificial giving. They don't just see the church's theological beliefs. They see those beliefs lived out. It's beautiful. And it gives them favor, and I mean, can't you imagine? It'd be supernatural today to gain favor with the way our current world is, but it's possible, and that's something that will happen if we're devoted to the right things. The churches sing signs and wonders; they're gaining favor with people. People are seeing what's happening, and lastly, but maybe most importantly. God is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. That's supernatural. That's salvation. These are people that aren't just coming to a church and praying a sinner's prayer and joining a membership blog. These are lives that are transformed and changed. And the only explanation is the gospel. The church is seeing people who are walking in darkness who are now free from it. And sojourn, I know you guys have been burdened to pray for your community, and I know soon you know that you're gonna be going out to meet your neighbors. Imagine what God could do supernaturally through you amidst your neighbors in the community. And again, I know that's not easy. Gives introverts anxiety. But imagine what God could do through your faithfulness, through you taking a calculated risk for the gospel. And God can do, and you, man, glorify God because of it. What could God do at Sojourn? Have you guys ever thought about where you see your church ten years from now, or hundred years from now? See, Concord, the church I'm an elder at, it's a really, really old church. We have a graveyard in the in the back. Faithful saints. And it's apparently full, so you can't get buried there anymore. We have people that sometimes go and lay down in the graveyard. Interesting life of contemplation. But um, it's an old church. And it makes me wonder sometimes, like, what the people who planted the church, who founded the church, what, what do they expect 100 years from now? Because, again, there's so many churches in Chattanooga and in North Georgia. Sojourn could just be that church like a lot of other churches. You meet together, you have similar, you have the right beliefs, but oftentimes we don't see the supernatural happen. Why is that the case? I think it goes back to the very first point. Are we devoted to those essentials? If we're devoted to the teaching of the apostles, if we're devoted to prayer, to leaning on God to be God, And to move, if we're devoted to fellowship together, to buying in, to giving ourselves fully to this, if we're devoted to those things, we're going to see the supernatural happen. We're going to see God move. We're going to see lives change. We're going to see people baptized. We're going to see our kids be saved. We're going to see our neighbors. And isn't that what we want to see? What holds us back from that? Often it's ourselves. We're too devoted to different things. We want the good life that the world presents, and we want, we want the good life that the Scriptures presents. What if, sojourn, you devote yourself fully to the good life, the life of the church? I know that sounds so radical, but it's so biblical, and it's so beautiful. So four quick points of application about this good life. Hopefully this text reveals that the good life is a simple life. It's a simple life. It's a life where you don't have to have a ton of stuff to be happy. All you need is to be devoted to simple things and to give yourselves to a body of believers who want to glorify Christ and reach their neighbors. You don't need a ton of stuff. You don't need cruises. You don't need money. You don't need everything in life to go well. It's a simple life. The good life is an intentional life. It's an intentional life. Are we intentional to devote ourselves to these things? Are we intentional to structure our schedules around these things? Are we pushing out church things because we have these other things that we're committed to? That's a battle. But we have to be intentional to be devoted to the body. The good life is the Christ-centered life. I mean, you guys do this, Weekly, with the Lord's Supper. You do this in what you sing. You do this, hopefully, in your small groups. It's a Christ-centered life. And last, but not least, as the passage tells you, the good life is a communal life. It's a life together. The worst thing we as Christians can do is to think the good life is just about me and my own personal devotions, my own time with the Lord. It's about us. That's the beauty of Acts 2. And I hope it's something that you buy into today. Again, I know there's people in this room that buy into that. You're sold. You're ready to just do that. But I also know there's people that are like, "Ah, I don't know about that. What holds you back? And what could God do in this church if you do commit to this good life? Let's pray together.